Hi, it's Niall here. Just wanted to make a quick request before today's episode. The Weekend University's mission is to make the best minds and ideas in psychology more accessible so that you can use the knowledge to improve your quality of life. We release pretty much all of our content for free and don't run any ads during the show. That said, we'd love to expand our reach and get the knowledge shared by our speakers into the hands of more people so that they can benefit too. So if you're in the mood for doing a random act of kindness today and helping others to improve their lives in the process, it would make a huge difference if you could take just 30 seconds and leave a short review on your favorite podcast provider, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. In addition, we'll pick one review each month and that person will get a free ticket to your monthly online conference, which usually costs around 50 pounds. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoy the show. So without further ado, let's get started with our first talk. So Dr. Taylor is the author of Extraordinary Awakenings and many other best-selling books, including The Leap and Spiritual Science. He's a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the chair of the Transpersonal Psychology Section of the British Psychological Society. Steve's articles and essays have been published in over 100 academic journals, magazines and newspapers, and he blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today. Eckhart Tolle has described his work as an important contribution to the shift in consciousness which is happening on our planet at present. Steve lives in Manchester, England with his wife and three children and three young children. And you can visit him online at www.stephenmtaylor.com. So this is actually Dr. Taylor's second talk with the Weekend University. He first spoke at our Science and Spirituality event. I think that was in 2018. So I'm sure you'll agree it's a real delight to have him back with us here today. Um, obviously in different circumstances than than in London, but um, it's still a delight nonetheless. So um, I, I'll just turn off my mic and cam now, and Dr. Taylor, whenever you're ready, we'll just we'll just get going. Thank you, Niall. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in this morning or this evening, depending on where you are in the world. And I noticed some people are in Australia, New Zealand, everywhere around the world. That's great that we have such a a global audience. I guess that's one of the advantage. One of the advantages of um, the, uh, the you know the, the online setting of this event, as opposed to the in-person event, which I did last time. In this morning session, or in this first session, I'm going to begin by sharing some of my research. Uh, about, for about the last 15 years, I've been researching the the topic of spiritual awakening. Uh, maybe I'll explain a little bit what I mean by spiritual awakening. I don't mean spiritual spiritual awakening in a religious sense, although it may overlap with, uh, with, with religion. To me, spiritual awakening is a, a phenomenon which occurs when people undergo an expansion of awareness. Their awareness becomes much more expansive and much more intense. The world around them becomes more real, more beautiful. Their connections with other people become much more intense and they become more compassionate and more empathic towards other people and other living beings and to the whole of the natural world, in fact. And they, they, their awareness becomes more intense in a, in a subjective sense. They journey deeper into their own beings. They explore the depths of their own beings. Um, and also in a conceptual sense, people, people develop a much wider awareness of reality, a much wider conceptual awareness. They develop a global perspective. So there's, there's this intensification 
and expansion of awareness across different areas. That's what I mean by spiritual awakening. And that can be sometimes temporary. It lasts for maybe a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, maybe a few hours, or it can become a permanent state. And we will look at both of those phenomenon uh, in this session, both when it's temporary and when it becomes permanent. But the main topic I want to explore is the relationship between spiritual awakening and psychological turmoil and trauma. Because in my research, I found a very strong connection between psychological turmoil, many different forms of psychological turmoil, and uh, spiritual awakening, both on a temporary and permanent basis. So we're going to look at some examples of some cases from my research. And we're going to explore the practical applications of this as well. In the second half of the talk, I'm going to guide you through a couple of exercises and a meditation to illustrate and explore the, these topics. In particular, I'm going to explore the, the importance of acceptance in spiritual awakening in the context of uh, turmoil and trauma. And uh, let me actually begin by um, asking you a question. I'll put this, I'm going to switch to the polls um, icon. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm just going to share the question now. Oh, I've actually, this is a good start. I've actually shared the wrong question. <laughs> That's the question I want to share later. But anyway, I, I'll ask you that now anyway, because people have started to answer it. Have you ever had a bad experience involving stress and suffering that ended up making you a stronger, happier person? This is to uh, introduce you to the topic of post-traumatic growth or in a more intense form, post-traumatic transformation. So already there's a very strong consensus. Um, so yeah, almost everybody has agreed with that question, has answered yes to that question. And yeah, I think uh, people have stopped answering now people nine people are not sure but overwhelmingly overwhelmingly 106 people have answered yes to that question but let me switch now to the question i wanted to ask in the first place we'll come back to that question a bit later um actually <laughs> here we go here's the here's the question i wanted to ask originally. So here's the second question. <clears throat> Have you ever had an awakening experience in which your awareness of reality has intensified and expanded? You could also refer to this as a spiritual experience. I use the term awakening because it's more neutral, but you could call it a spiritual experience in which your awareness of reality has intensified and expanded. It could be an experience in which your awareness is expanded in a perceptual sense. You become more aware of the intense beauty and isness of the world around you. Maybe you become intensely aware of your connection to other living beings or to nature. Maybe you become filled with an intense sense of love and compassion towards other people. So again, we've got a a strong consensus 
over 100 people, 81% of the audience agree or um, have answered that question affirmatively. There's still a few coming in, so I'll wait for a few more seconds. If you want to, you know, it would be interesting to to share your experiences. You, know, you could give a brief description of these experiences in the chat box, if you like. And um, yeah, so almost 90% of the audience have answered yes to that question, which illustrates how, how common these experiences are. In fact, surveys show that over half of the general population have had this kind of experience at least once. And around, I think around more than, more than a third of people have had this experience regu- or, uh, more than once or regularly. So these experiences are very common, even though they're slightly taboo in our culture. You know, people are often afraid of talking about these experiences because they're so unusual and they're afraid of what other people may think about them, particularly people who, you know, who are scientifically minded people who've kind of imbibed the kind of materialistic, secular worldview of our culture, they're they're sometimes quite slightly afraid of sharing these experiences. I often remind people that you don't need to be religious to have these kind of experiences. Religious people obviously have these kind of experiences, but you can also have them if you are not religious in a totally secular situation. And in fact, it was my own experiences of this type which led to my interest um, in investigating the link between awakening experiences and psychological turmoil. Because when I was a teenager, maybe 16 or 17 years old, I went through a period of severe depression, which lasted probably until my early 20s, probably lasted five or six years, a period of depression that was so severe that I found sometimes found it difficult to get out of bed. I found it difficult to speak to other people. And I you know, often contemplated suicide. But Every so often in the midst of my depression, I would undergo these experiences in which a strange sense of connection would overwhelm me, and a strange sense of harmony. For example, I'd be walking through the park or the school fields, and I'd suddenly feel a sense of connection to the sky or to the trees, to the fields. And they became intensely alive, almost as if they were sentient, almost as if the trees and the fields were sentient beings. And I felt this tremendous sense of harmony, this tremendous sense that everything was actually okay. There was nothing to worry about. And then, of course, I'd come back down into my normal state of depression. But these experiences happened so quite frequently. And you know, they gave me a feeling of optimism, which helped me to endure um, and, and eventually emerge from my depression. So that made me aware of the strong connection between, well, it was actually later on when I began to research these experiences, I wondered if my own experiences, my own awakening experiences were connected to this period of severe depression I went through. And I became a psychologist, in fact, because I wanted to analyze these experiences. I wanted to find out how common they were. I wanted to find out, um, you know, in which context they occurred. I wanted to find out why they occurred, which situations and activities they were linked to. So I'm going to share a few slides with you now. As I said, in the first part of the session, I'll share some of my research. And after the break, we'll, we'll um, engage in some practical applications and some exercises. But let me share the first slide. This is, the question, this is actually the question I asked in my research about wake, awakening experiences. The question in more detail was, 
This could be an experience in which your, your surroundings have become brighter and more real, and you've become struck by the unusual beauty and vividness of things. Perhaps you felt a sense of connection to them and a deep sense of well-being inside you. Or perhaps you have felt a sense of harmony and meaning pervade the world, a sense that all things are one and that you are part of this oneness. This experience may have left you with a sense that life is more meaningful. So those are the typical qualities or characteristics of awakening experiences. And when I became a psychologist, I undertook a couple of different studies, research studies about these experiences. And my main aim was to find out what were the situations in which these experiences occurred. Were they linked to contact with nature? Were they linked to uh, psychedelic drugs? Or what, you know, what other situations could they be linked to? And this is what I found in my research. This is a research study I did with a colleague in 2017. And we investigated 91 of these experiences. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we found out, to our surprise, that uh, the most frequent trigger of these experiences was psychological turmoil or traumatic experiences. Stress, depression, loss, bereavement were, were typical examples. So over a third of the experiences were connected to psychological turmoil. That's quite a significant percentage. And the other significant triggers were contact with nature, 23 out of 91. Spiritual practice, 21. Spiritual literature, uh, which means listening to a talk or a video or reading a book. Uh, that was 15 out of 91. Then a few other more minor triggers. Interestingly, psychedelics did not come up as a major trigger. That's probably because we were investigating cases from the general population where I mean, most people have not tried psychedelic drugs. But obviously, amongst the people who have, they are a significant trigger of awakening experiences. So it was, uh, even though I knew, I sensed that psychological turmoil was connected to these experiences, it was still quite surprising to find out that they were so prevalent, you know, and, and in my research, I, connected, I collected some really interesting cases and examples of these experiences triggered by psychological turmoil. Let me show you a couple now. This is an awakening experience induced by an intensely traumatic situation. And that situation is warfare. This experience was given me by a man who was, at that time he was a soldier in Vietnam in the American army. Uh, this was in 1969. And he was fighting on the battlefield and suddenly in the midst of all the stress and in the midst of the, the violence and conflict, he had this amazing experience. He said, with the casualties mounting, I was in a state of high anxiety. And I figured there was no way I would live through this seemingly endless battle. At one point, after carrying yet another severely wounded Marine to a waiting chopper, something happened to me. It's actually indescribable, but I will make a feeble attempt to do so. I opened up, literally, from my perspective. I came out of myself. I expanded infinitely. I disappeared. It didn't last long but it was the most powerful experience I've ever had. I think this experience was probably connected to being in a situation where you, when there was a danger of dying, I think it was connected to encountering mortality. And even though it was uh, 
quite a brief experience. It had a, a lifelong impact. When the man returned to America, he wanted to explore the experience. He didn't know anything about spirituality or Buddhism or any kind of spiritual tradition, but he sensed that he could explain this experience in those terms. So he began to investigate meditation, um, psychedelics. He began to, he joined a Buddhist center because he was trying to understand this experience and also trying to recapture it. He told me that he'd never managed to recapture this kind of intensity of experience, but he'd, he'd had glimpses again. And here's another example. This is from a more kind of everyday setting. This was actually a young woman who was suffering from intense depression. She had actually attempted suicide and was in hospital. And one morning she woke up in a hospital bed and there, for some reason there was a marble on her bedside table. She had no idea where it had come from, but she picked up the marble and examined it. And suddenly the marble became a symbol of, of oneness. And this is how she described the experience which ensued. She said, I saw reality as simply this perfect oneness. I felt suddenly removed from everything that was personal. Everything seemed just right. All my problems and my suffering suddenly seem meaningless, ridiculous, simply a misunderstanding of my true nature and everything around me. There was a feeling of acceptance and oneness. It was a moment of enlightenment, the euphoria and inexplicable rush of understanding, of knowledge and understanding following this episode lasted for days. So this, these are quite intense awakening experiences. And when awakening experiences are this intense, they do have long lasting after effects. This uh, person, this experience gave her a sense of optimism, a new sense of positivity. So it helped her to emerge from her depression and it helped her to move into a, a more positive phase of her life. Awakening experiences can be more kind of mundane than this. They can just be a, a feeling of oneness with nature, a feeling of stillness in nature. But I guess because the, the trauma which, which um, was involved in these experiences was quite, was quite intense, then they tend to give rise to quite intense awakening experiences. A mild awakening experience can emerge from meditation. You know, sometimes after a good meditation, a person may feel that everything around them is more real, more vivid, more beautiful. They may feel a sense of connection to the world around them, a sense of the beauty of nature, and a sense that their everyday worries and anxieties have faded away. So that's one of the, the main characteristics of these experiences, that they have long-lasting after effects, even though they may be very, very brief, lasting just a few seconds or a few days. One of the interesting questions, of course, is why intense trauma has these, these powerful positive effects? Why intense trauma can give rise to awakening experiences? That's something we're going to come back to a bit later on. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe one important thing to remember is that when a person goes through intense trauma and suffering in these, in these circumstances, <clears throat> it may break down their normal sense of identity. It's such a, there may be such an intense shock there may be such an intense psychological shock to them that their normal sense of identity, their egoic identity, if you like, may fade away 
briefly. And, you know, the, that identity may reemerge and reestablish itself. But if a person has glimpsed, glimpsed this awakened state, they know it's there and they know that they can possibly return to it. So, yeah, I'm just noting the comments here. Somebody says awakening, enlightenment. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. Enlightenment is refer, usually refers to a permanent ongoing state of wakefulness. I use the term wakefulness when this state becomes permanent or ongoing. These are sort of brief glimpses of enlightenment, you could say. And there are, off, there are obviously different degrees and different intensities of these states. Um, so, you know, they, they, there can be quite a lot of variation inside them. But let me move on to um, a different aspect of this now. I'm going to move on to briefly to, to discuss the topic of post-traumatic growth, which is very closely interlinked to this topic. That's, this is where I wanted to ask you that question. <laughs> Have you ever had a bad experience involving stress, upset, suffering and turmoil, which you feel that in the end made you a stronger and happier person? So, yeah, um, if I remember correctly, around 90% or more than 90% of people answered affirmatively to that question. So it's a very common human experience. I guess it's the idea, and um, I think this phrase originally comes from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. The idea that challenging experiences, crises, psychological turmoil, suffering of one form or another can make us stronger. And in psychology, this has led to the, the concept of post-traumatic growth, which is probably one of the most um, well-researched areas in psychology over the last 20 years. But it's interesting to look at where, where the concept of post-traumatic growth originally emerged. I'll give you a brief uh, overview of how it emerged. Some of you older people who are based in the UK, in the UK may remember this. In 1986, there was a, a tragic um, incident where a ferry collapsed and sank um, just off the coast of Belgium. It was, it was sailing from Britain to Belgium and it collapsed, sorry, uh, it, it, it sank just a few hundred meters away from the Belgian coast and around 200 people died. It was, it was, it was winter, I think it was December or November, so the water was incredibly cold. It, most people died um, from exposure to the cold, the cold seawater. But three years after the incident, a psychologist called Stephen Joseph, who is now quite an eminent psychologist who studies post-traumatic growth, he did a survey with the 193 survivors. It was one of the first ever studies of, of post-traumatic growth. And he found that three years after the accident, the incident, people still had some symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But these symptoms had diminished. And most surprisingly, Stephen Joseph found that 43% of people remarked on or reported positive effects. 43% of people remarked, remarked that their view of life had changed for the better. And this included no longer taking life for granted, valuing relationships more, feeling more experienced about life. So as, as the experience earlier about the, of the soldier um, who encountered death on the battlefield, I think this experience is largely about an encounter with mortality. 
if you come close to death, then one effect it, ha it has is that you no longer take life for granted. You become aware that life is a, a gift. It's fragile, it's precious, it's temporary, but it's a, it's a gift. And also you value relationships more, probably because you sense that other people's lives are temporary as well. You know, every life becomes temporary and precious. And you feel an, an intensified connection to other people. Also, people reported feeling more experienced about life. When you go through a challenge like that, it gives you a sense of resilience, a sense of inner strength. And you, you, know, you, you feel more resilient in the face of life, life's other challenges. I had an interesting um, case recently. I investigated post-traumatic growth in refugees and asylum seekers in Yorkshire. Um, with a team of researchers based at my university. And obviously, asylum seekers and refugees go through in incredibly intense trauma. It's the trauma that, leaves them to, that leads them to leave their homelands. And also, when they become refugees and asylum seekers, that's traumatic as well. Um, so they face two types of trauma. But we did find some remarkable examples of you know, people who have been through incredibly severe trauma. There was one woman who... Um, who was involved in a terrorist attack in Nigeria and members of her family had died in the terrorist attack. She'd come close to death herself. But she said that after that, she felt that nothing, you know, nothing could hurt her anymore. She felt that she was so strong. She was like, she said she was like a lioness. She was so strong that she could face any challenge. Obviously, she still experienced grief and PTSD, but at the same time, she had this tremendous sense of inner strength because of what she'd been through. Um, yeah, I will share, I'll share the research, maybe not now, it'll take me a while to find it, but I'll share it uh, after the session. Or maybe now I can send it to you as, a, as a, an email. So this, um, this, as I said, this is one of the first studies of post-traumatic growth. And it led to a lot more research. And now the standard model of post-traumatic growth <clears throat> is that post-traumatic growth has five different areas. And it's not about simply adjustment and coping. Um, it's a, it goes beyond that. It goes into more deep-rooted and positive changes. Um, so one of the five areas is personal strength, as I mentioned in relation to the, the ferry disaster. People become more resilient, more confident. They feel that after they've been through these challenges and survived the challenges, that they have a new inner strength which they can bring to bear on other situations in their lives. And relating to others, so people feel that their relationships become more intimate, more authentic. They have a stronger connection to other people. Uh, they become more compassionate, more empathic, and so on. I think a large part of that is no longer taking other people for granted. You know, it's easy in life to take our friends and relatives for granted. But when, you have an, when you've been through post-traumatic growth, you're, you are less likely to do that. Appreciation for life, again, that's about no longer taking things for granted. It's about appreciating the small things in life that maybe you took for granted before. It's about appreciating life itself, you know, in relation to its fragility and, and temporary nature. You know, most of us do, we do take for granted, life for granted. I think a lot of us unconsciously think that we're going to live forever. But when you have an experience of post-traumatic growth, Sometimes it snaps you out of that taking for grantedness. 
there's a sense of new possibilities. You feel less affected by inertia. You feel more able to, to do new things, to explore new avenues, to, to take new opportunities. You know, the world seems more open and you feel, you feel more able to take those opportunities. And also spiritual change. A lot of people after post-traumatic growth, um, they become interested in spirituality and religion, partly because they want to they make sense of their experiences, but also because they, they hunger for meaning. They feel that life is, life is about more than just getting by or just trying to accumulate possessions or wealth or trying to become successful. Life is about developing your potential. It's about helping others. It's about being connected to the world. It's about helping the whole world. So there's a shift into this um, a more spiritual way of life. And post-traumatic growth is very common. Research suggests that in any traumatic event or after any traumatic event, around 50%, I think the actual figure is 47% of people will undergo post-traumatic growth. So not everybody, not everybody experiences, experiences it, but it is extremely common. Um, and and it's, it's important to remember that PTSD and PTG can exist in parallel. PTSD obviously takes a long time to fade away. People may have therapy to deal with it. But PTG, post-traumatic growth, can coexist with PTSD. Although usually it takes the PTSD to fade away to some degree. You know, when PTSD is incredibly intense, it usually blocks PTG. But after a while, once PTSD has begun to diminish its intensity, um, PTG begins to manifest itself. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the, the chat box. If you have any experiences, feel free to share them. If you have any experiences of PTG. But let me move on to a slightly different topic now. In my, the main area of my research in psychology has not been post-traumatic growth in itself, but it's a phenomenon which I refer to as post-traumatic transformation, which is very similar to post-traumatic growth, but it's a more intense and more dramatic type of experience. And let me, let me explain what I mean by uh, post-traumatic transformation. I guess you could call it spiritual awakening. I, I usually discuss it in tandem with spiritual awakening. And I see it as, I see it as basically interchangeable with spiritual awakening. Post-traumatic growth is, a, is also a kind of spiritual awakening, but that happens on a very gradual basis. Post-traumatic growth is more dramatic and it's more intense. And I describe it as people who go through periods of intense psychological turmoil or trauma, such as serious illness, bereavement, depression, disability, addiction, loss, sometimes report going through a dramatic transformation into a higher functioning state which is equivalent to permanent spiritual awakening. It is not uncommon amongst prisoners and soldiers. It's also not uncommon amongst people who attempt suicide. In addicts, or there's a typo there, it should say in addicts, it may manifest itself in addiction release, a sudden freedom from craving. It may also manifest itself in the sudden disappearance of physical ail ailments and of the effects of trauma. So some of these, some of these um, claims are quite startling. You know, sudden freedom from craving, 
a sudden release of physical ailments, but I'll explain those as we go along. Um, I mentioned uh, prisoners. Uh, I've done quite a bit of research on spiritual awakening or spiritual development in prisoners. There's a fantastic organization in the UK that I, I got in contact with called the Prison Phoenix Trust. And they, they're active in about 10% of UK prisons. They organize meditation and yoga sessions, and they, they generally support the spiritual development of prisoners. Not in a religious sense, that's not a religious organization. But they, they are aware that prison is an environment where spiritual development or spiritual awakening can arise. Partly because prison is, a, is an environment where, you, where a lot of people are forced to examine themselves, to reflect on their lives and their behavior. People are forced to go inside in another sense, not just inside the prison, but inside themselves and to examine themselves because they have a lot of, they have a lot of free time. Um, and a, a lot of people obviously react very negatively to the free time and the, the solitude and the inactivity. But for some people, it's the opportunity to, to go into themselves and explore themselves. And, but I think probably the main reason why prison can be an environment where spiritual awakening occurs is because it's an environment where you let go. You have to let go of everything in your external life. Once you're inside the prison, everything that defines your identity is outside the prison, almost everything. Your role in society, your friends, your role as a parent or a brother or sister, your status, your possessions, even your ambitions, everything is outside. So you have to let go of those things. And in the process of letting go, um, an awakening may arise. That's why the organization calls itself the Prison Phoenix Trust, because once a person has let go of their identity, a new identity may arise inside them like a phoenix from the ashes of their old identity. So let me, um, let me give you a couple of examples of these experiences. And... I've got a few examples on the slide. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the, the, important, the important thing to remember is that it's the emergence of a new identity. In psychological terms, I'd call it a self-system. It's the emergence of a new self to system, which is fundamentally different to a person's previous self. One person described it as, it's like there are two people. There's a before and after. I've moved up to another level of awareness, which I know is going to stay with me. It's like the transformation a caterpillar goes through during the chrysalis stage before emerging as a butterfly. So what I think happens is that intense turmoil and stress breaks down a person's identity. And in the process of breaking down their identity, in some people, a new identity emerges like a phoenix inside them. And that's why in some addicts, there is this strange phenomenon where they suddenly become free of their addictions. I'll explain an example of that in a moment. It's because the, the, the identity which carried the addiction has faded away. It's dissolved away. And their new, their new identity is completely fresh. It's born as a new identity, which doesn't carry any addictions. And it also doesn't carry the trauma of their previous experiences. So it sounds uh, miraculous, and, and in a way it is. It's a very strange experience. But I've, I've investigated many cases where people suddenly become free of addictions. And also when they suddenly become free of psychological ailments, 
that have plagued them for a long time. I think that's probably because a lot of psychological ailments, or some of them, sorry, a lot of physical ailments are psychosomatic. Some at least are psychosomatic. So psychosomatic ailments, which are caused by the interaction of the mind and the body, can sometimes fade away once a person undergoes an identity shift. So let, let me give you a couple of examples. <clears throat> this was a lady called Irene Murray, uh, who I investigated in my research. She was diagnosed with cancer uh, at the age of, I think she was 43 when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was told that her cancer um, was aggressive and that she may only have six months to a year left to live. And her awakening was quite remarkable because it happened almost as soon as she was diagnosed, almost as, she, almost as soon as she was told the news that she only had a few months or a year left to live. And this is how she described it. This is how she described her experience as she emerged from the consulting room. It was the first time I'd seen death as a reality and realized that life is just temporary. The following day, I woke up and thought, I'm just so lucky to be alive, the fact that I'm still here. The air was so clean and fresh and everything I looked at seemed so vibrant and vivid. The trees were so green and everything was so alive. I became, a, I became aware of this energy radiating from the trees. I had a tremendous feeling of connectedness. And like a lot of people who have this experience, she expected it to fade away. But it remained, although a slightly, um, a slightly diminished intensity. She said, the feeling was really intense for the first few weeks, and it's remained ever since. It just blew me away. It really did. I used to just sit and think, this is amazing that things could just fall into place so quickly. And it remained, um, it became an ongoing state for Irene over the next few years. Um, she gave up her previous job. She, she had been a, a marketing person for a, a pharmaceutical comp com company. She gave up that that job and became a therapist. She worked with other cancer patients in hospital because as, as you probably guessed by my description here, she actually, her cancer went into remission. And, but even though the cancer went into remission, she remained in this state of heightened intensity. She remained with this expansive awareness. And unfortunately, after 12 years, her cancer returned. She actually died in, Irene died a few years ago. But um, even though her cancer returned, I, I spoke to her not long before she died. And she was incredibly grateful that she had had this opportunity to spend 12 or 13 years in this heightened state of awareness. She was incredibly grateful that she had woken up in this way. It was a, she experienced it as a real awakening, a sense that she'd become more aware of the reality of life and more aware of her own predicament as a, as a living being and her own connection to nature. So it wasn't a dissociation. Sometimes these experiences, um, or this is true of post-traumatic growth, it's some psychologists are skeptical and try to explain it in terms of depersonalization or disassociation. But I'm, um, you know, I don't think that that's the case because these people actually become more intensely engaged with the reality. They have a more powerful connection to other people, to the world in general, to life itself. So it's rather than a, a dissociation, it's actually an increased sense of connection with the world. I'll give you another example. Um, 
Just let me, I briefly mentioned this one. This is Jill Hicks, who was a survivor of the 7-7 bombings in London, which I think took place in 2006. And she was seriously disabled. She lost her legs. Her legs were amputated below the knee because she was, um, she was very close to one of the bombs when it exploded on the tube near King's Cross. And she had a, she had a near-death experience where she felt that she left her body. She floated into darkness. And she felt that she had the option whether she could return to her body or whether she could float into this darkness, which seemed somehow welcoming and, and pe very peaceful. But she decided to return to her body because she was aware of the grief that her friends and family would suffer. But once she'd returned to her body and once she'd recovered in hospital um, after a few weeks, she felt that she was a different person living a different life. She called it life two. And she felt this new sense of purpose a new sense of meaning, and most of all, a new sense of gratitude. Despite her disability, she felt, she felt really grateful for her body, for all the amazing things that her body does and, and did to keep her alive. And she felt intense gratitude for the, the very simple things in life, like eating and walking and looking at nature, the very basic, simple pleasures that a lot of us take for granted. Let me just give you one example. This, um, this is a story of... Uh, spiritual awakening, which is connected to suicide and also to addiction. This is a woman called Eve from Edinburgh. Uh, she gave me permission to share these photos. The, the photo on the right is just when she was in the final stages of um, her, her alcoholism. And the photo is, uh, this is of her now. And she was a, a severe alcoholic for 29 years. And that brought her to, you know, the, the depths of despair. She bottomed out and she was a she described it as being a wreck, an empty shell. She was homeless at the end, and she was so weak physically that she'd have to sit down after a few steps. So she said, I, I had nothing to live for, nothing to give, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. I don't have the strength. So, and she'd reached a point in alcoholism where if she didn't drink for half an hour or so, she'd start to get the shakes, she'd start to have hallucinations and feel paranoid and feel tremendously depressed. So she decided to uh, commit suicide, to kill herself. And, but fortunately, she survived. She, she walked in front of a coach, but the coach driver swerved. A policeman picked her up, took her to her parents' house. And the first thing her parents said to her, they knew she was an alcoholic. They said, I suppose we'll have to give you a drink. You're an alcoholic. So her mother gave her a, a glass of wine. But for some strange, strange reason, she couldn't drink the wine. She said... I picked up the glass, lifted it, and put it down. I kept picking it up and putting it down. It wasn't me that was put, putting it down. And then a mother put her in front of a mirror and said, look at yourself. You're an alcoholic. This is what you've done to yourself. Done to yourself. But she said when she looked at herself, it was one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had. I had no idea who I was. I didn't connect with my reflection. I felt like a completely different person. And then uh, she was given some medication to deal with the withdrawal symptoms of alcoholism. When she came to, after being conscious for a while, she felt that she was a different person. She said, my whole psyche changed completely. I have no trauma in spite of all the terrible things I went, I went through. It was as if I stepped from one world into the next. And one part of that was that the, her addiction suddenly and miraculously disappeared. She went to, she started to go to AA meetings 
And she felt slightly guilty because a lot of other addicts or alcoholics would struggle. They talk about how it was a struggle to get by from day to day. But she said she never had that struggle. In a strange, miraculous way, she became free of her addiction. And she shifted into what you could call a spiritually awakened state, which became, which has been a normal state for the past 10 years now. So these are, these are some cases from my book, my new book, Extraordinary Awakenings. So you, you could see this as a form of post-traumatic growth, but it's a very intense form, um, very dramatic form, which I call post-traumatic transformation. Um, I'll just, you know, I'll, it, it is quite a mysterious phenomenon, but I think there are some, you know, there are some hints about how we could explain this phenomenon. And I've hinted about this already, but it is connected, I think, to ego dissolution, the dissolution of our normal identity through intense stress, causing a sudden breakdown, or through a process which I call psychological detachments, the dissolving of psychological attachments. I mentioned this briefly in relation to prison, that when prisoners are, are inside the prison, they, they are forced to let go of their attachments, which can be a very painful experience, but also can be a liberating experience. And this is what happens in these cases, I think. Often when people go through intense turmoil, it's because their psychological attachments are taken away. And by psychological attachments, I mean things like hopes for the future, a sense of status, uh, possessions, beliefs about the world, ambitions, and so on. All of these things are the psychological attachments which help to sustain our normal sense of identity. They tell us who we are, our hopes, beliefs, ambitions, our status, our success, our achievements, and so on. They all give us a sense of who we are. And when people go through intense loss, trauma, and stress, they are forced to let go of these attachments. And that's why it's so painful. That's why they go through intense depression and desolation. But for some people, the letting go of these attachments can give rise to a new self. It's as if when the normal self dissolves away due to stress or the dissolution of psychological attachments, there's suddenly an open space. And in some people, there seems to be what you could call a, a latent higher self our latent spiritually awakened self, which is ready to emerge and to take over their identity. And that's what happened. That's what happens, I think, in the cases I've described. In the ashes of the old identity, a new identity emerges. I think this is probably a good point to have a break. Uh, it's been nearly, it's been just over 45 minutes and we're going to have like a five minute break now. After the break, we're going to explore the reasons why only some people seem to undergo this transformation. And we're going to investigate how we can apply this transformation to our own experience, how we can use it. Um, and I'm going to take you through a couple of exercises and a meditation to illustrate these points. Okay, everybody. So I'll see you in five minutes or so. And uh, as I said, in this session, I'm going to round off my discussion about my research and then guide you through a couple of exercises based on how we can apply the findings of uh, my research. Um, oh, by the way, I just noticed somebody made the comment about um, 
whether spiritual awakening always involves trauma. I don't, I don't think that's the case. In fact, in, in my book, The Leap, I suggested that um, there are three ways in which spiritual awakening can occur. One is when it occurs naturally. You know, there are some people who are just naturally born in a state of spiritual wakefulness. They naturally have a more intense awareness, a more expansive awareness, and a more intense sense of connection to nature, to other people, and to their own deeper beings. Those people often become artists, poets. Sometimes they become social activists because they feel such a strong sense of connection to the human race and a, such a strong desire to, to help the human race. Interestingly, not a lot of people know this, but sounds like Michael Caine he used to say that. But um, you've heard of Florence Nightingale. If you're in the UK, you've definitely heard of Florence Nightingale, who was the founding, founder of the modern nursing profession and also responsible for a lot of other social um, developments, a lot of health and hygiene developments. She was an amazing woman, but she was a, a very spiritually awakened person. In fact, in her later life, she, she wrote books about mysticism and her desire to help other people came from her wakefulness, I think, from her intense sense of compassion and empathy for, for human suffering. So that's a good example of how spiritual awakening can propel people into social activism. Applies to a lot of people like Gandhi as well, maybe Martin Luther King, a lot of intensely engaged social activists are spiritually awakened people often just naturally awakened you know they don't they don't need to do they don't need to meditate or to go through intense trauma it's just their normal state which they always return to the second way in which spiritual awakening can occur is when it's gradual and all over the world there are probably hundreds of millions of people who are following some kind of spiritual path whether it's a formal path like buddhism or Taoism or the Kabbalah or Sufism and so on. There were lots of people who were following some kind of informal spiritual path, even an accidental spiritual path. People who are living lives of service and um, altruism, which also has a kind of spiritually develop developing effect. So it can happen gradually. You know, if you, if you engage in any kind of spiritual practice like meditation, altruism, service, these are all spiritual practices, it's bound to have some, some kind of cumulative effect. And the third way in which spiritual awakening can occur is when it does involve trauma. So this is the, the third kind of awakening we're talking about here. It can, that can be gradual too, but, but often it, it happens in a very sudden, dramatic way in the midst of intense trauma, such as bereavement, a diagnosis of cancer, uh, prison, warfare, and, and so on. Some, we've already seen some examples. So, um, yeah, one, one of the pertinent questions here is why doesn't everyone experience transformation through turmoil or post-traumatic transformation? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question because every human being goes through intense trauma at some point in their lives. It was the Buddha who said that life is suffering or life involves suffering. And, you know, he, the Buddha was right. Every human being goes through intense suffering at some point in their lives, so whether it's to, due to bereavement. There's a really famous, you know, the famous story um, about the, uh, the woman who went to the Buddha asking, to help, asking for help to bring her baby back to life. They were told that the Buddha was a kind of magician who had magical powers and maybe he could, he could bring a baby back to life. And the Buddha said to her, okay, just bring me, um, um, bring me, oh, I've forgotten it now. 
something to do with mustard seed. Oh, he said, bring me a grain of mustard seed from every house where nobody has experienced a bereavement. So the woman went around the village. She said, you know, have you experienced a bereavement? If not, could you give me some mustard seeds? And obviously she couldn't find a house where nobody had suffered bereavement. And she began to realize how common bereavement is. Now it's just a natural fact of life. And it was, a, it was a lesson about, you know, how every human being goes through suffering of some form. And it helped her to deal with her bereavement. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that every great artist or social activist is spiritually awakened. Definitely not. Some artists are narcissists or even psychopaths. Like politicians, you know, a lot of politicians, I think, have narcissistic or even psychopathic traits. But some, you know, some politicians are, are good people. So it's, it's a wide spectrum of, um, of people. A wide spectrum of psychological traits. So, you know, bearing in mind that everyone goes through suffering, why doesn't everybody experience post-traumatic transformation? A lot of people experience post-traumatic growth, but even there, slightly less than half of the population do not experience post-traumatic growth. And why doesn't everybody experience this transformation we've already heard about? So I think there are some important factors which determine whether some people experience the transformation and, and others do not. I think partly it's due to openness to experience. Some people are more sort of tightly controlled within their own egos. Uh, they are more shut off from the world, more isolated within their own identities. Interestingly, research suggests that in my, in my research anyway, that women are more likely to undergo post-traumatic transformation than men. Maybe women are just more likely to report it, but you see, it does seem to the case that women are more likely to undergo it. And maybe that's because women have a slightly, in general, obviously we're talking about general traits, they have a more of a trait of openness to experience. Maybe it's connected to labile ego boundaries. And there was one, um, one person I know who, he, he underwent his own spiritual awakening after, in the aftermath of his alcoholism, a, a breakdown due to alcoholism. And he began to work at a cancer hospital in Manchester, Christie's Hospital, as a therapist and a counsellor. And he told me that when he saw cancer patients, he could always sense who was going to undergo post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic transformation. And he said it was usually the people who had a strong, strong sense of control, often people who'd been in very high positions in their careers, in their professions. Because he said, because these people were not willing to let go and their ego boundaries were stronger. So that, that seems to be one factor. But also, there seems to be a question of readiness. Some people seem to be ready for this transformation. I mentioned that it's almost as if there is a, a latent higher self in some people waiting to emerge. And maybe in some people, they're just not ready. Their, their latent higher self just has not formed. Maybe it's structurally not ready to emerge. But in some people, it's almost as if this, this higher self, this hidden higher self was there all the time. It was just waiting for the opportunity to arise and to become their normal self. So maybe it's a question of readiness. But also, I have found in my research um, that acknowledgement and acceptance are very important. Many of the shifters, as I call them, people who shift into this higher state, they could identify a point where they accepted their situation. It was often the point where transformation took place. Uh, I'll just give you one example. The man I just mentioned who became a cancer therapist, he, he had a breakdown due to alcoholism. And he underwent his transformation as a part of the AA process where you let go 
where you hand over your problem. He wasn't religious, but he, he said he could, he could, you know, he could make sense of the idea that he needed to hand over his problem because he couldn't deal with it. It was too big for him to deal with. So he let go of his transformation, of, of his problem. And in the moment of letting go, of handing over, he underwent a sudden shift. He suddenly felt that something gave way inside him and something new emerged inside him, almost as if a new energy arose inside him, a new sense of identity arose inside him. And there was another person, actually, I mentioned her in the slides, even though I didn't describe it, but there was a woman who underwent transformation in a Japanese prison. She was in prison for three years in Japan. Um, and she, was, she suffered very extreme suffering in the prison environment. She was forced to work incredibly hard. They weren't allowed to talk. Uh, they weren't allowed to exercise and so on. But she underwent transformation where she, she was in so much pain physically and mentally that she decided to just let go, to just give up. And she developed the habit of dropping down, she called it, into her pain. And in the act of dropping down, something shifted inside her. She gained access to a new part of her being. And I think this is also why there seems to be a connection between uh, transformation through turmoil or post-traumatic transformation and suicide. I mentioned uh, Eve earlier, who had a, a spiritual awakening after attempting suicide. And for her, I think the, the decision to attempt suicide was a kind of letting go. She just, it was a giving up. You know, she had no more hope. She had no more ambition. She just totally gave up and let go. And in the process, she underwent transformation. So I think that, that point of letting go, of giving up, is very important because it signifies acceptance. And I want to explore the topic of acceptance in a bit more detail because it's so important to these transformations. First of all, there is a question of acknowledgement, of facing the reality of your predicament. And then there is a process of accepting your predicament. So I want to explore that in a, a little more detail now with a, an exercise. So this is where we move on to the, the practical aspects of this. So I want to explore what we can learn from this in terms of how we should respond when challenges and crises occur in our lives. And how can we harness the transformational potential of traumatic experiences and events? Because... Um, you know, it's, it's obvious from this research that trauma and psychological turmoil do have transformational potential. And, you know, when challenges and crises occur in our lives, perhaps we can follow certain processes to harness this potential. This applies to communities, too. I've often been struck by the, the way in which communities can undergo post-traumatic growth. You know, when a, when a community goes through a crisis, a collective crisis, then often the community binds together. People become more empathic towards one another. They become more connected, more altruistic. And the whole community shifts to a higher level of integration. So it, it can even happen on a global level too. Uh, I've suggested in an article recently that perhaps through the pandemic, the whole planet, the whole human race may undergo some collective post-traumatic growth. And we may become more interconnected and more integrated as a result of it. 
So let's explore acceptance in a bit more detail now. And also, I want to mention what I think are three stages of harnessing the transformational potential of adversity. We can maybe try, try this with an example. Maybe you can think of a, maybe an, an imaginary example, or maybe even a real example, if it's not too intense. Think of a, a predicament which may give rise to some degree of resistance or frustration in your life. Not necessarily traumatic, but something which causes some degree of psychological resistance, some degree of psychological frustration. Um, you know, you, you can imagine this. When, when people are diagnosed with an illness, they often want to divert themselves from thinking about it. Uh, my wife faces this all the time. My, my wife's a medic and she works in a, a very deprived part of Manchester. And she often deals with people with very severe health conditions. But she says one of her biggest problems is people don't want to face up to the reality of their situations. Uh, because it's painful. It's, it's painful to face up to the reality of these predicaments. So that's our first instinct. I call it the avoidance instinct. It's the instinct to push away the predicament. But actually, it's more beneficial to, for us to face the reality of the predicament. So maybe just try that now if you've thought of an example, either imaginary or real, of a situation. Just rather than forcing it away, just bring it into your consciousness. Bring it into your mind right now. And contemplate the predicament. And as you contemplate the predicament, you'll become aware of some degree of negativity within you, negative feelings associated with it, negative thoughts. It's also important to acknowledge those. Don't push them away. Acknowledge those negative feelings. Even if it causes some degree of discomfort. And this leads to a process of exploration where you go inside yourself. Again, when we face difficulties in our lives, we are, we often have an instinct to avoid our own inner space because that's where we feel psychological, psychological pain. But it's important to go inside ourselves and explore our subjective experiences. So maybe we can do that now. Actually, it might help to close your eyes. Let's close our eyes for a moment. And if you contemplate a situation, and if you are aware of negative feelings and thoughts about a situation, just enter, allow yourself to enter your inner space. And just be aware of those thoughts and feelings even if they create some degree of discomfort. Rather than avoiding them, go towards them. Explore them. Just observe them. And you might find that as you observe the thoughts and feelings, 
You're aware of a distance between you and them, a space between you and them. Almost as if you're sitting by a riverbank, just watching a river flow by, watching your thoughts and feelings flow by. And when you're aware of the space between yourself and your thoughts and feelings, you may become aware that the, the discomfort begins to diminish. It seems to somehow neutralize or de-intensify the psychological discomfort. And at this point, we'll move into acceptance. And this is where you make a conscious effort to release your resistance to the predicament. You let go of your resistance and open yourself to the situation. And in doing so, you feel a sense of release. Almost a sense of oneness. And I'd just like to explore that in a bit more detail. So keep your eyes closed if you've closed them already. I'm just going to explore the topic of acceptance in a bit more detail now. So just um, center yourself inside your mental space. Allow the image or the thoughts of, your, of the predicament to fade away. Just allow your mind to become quiet for a few moments. If any thoughts enter your mind and take your attention away, just gently bring them back, bring yourself back to your mental space, just center yourself within your mental space. It might help to be aware of your breathing as well. Just feel the air entering and leaving your nose. Feel the air brushing the inside of your nose as you breathe in and out. I'm going to take you through an exercise to illustrate what I call the alchemy of acceptance. And this, this phrase refers to the the power of acceptance to transform situations and predicaments. The power of acceptance to neutralize negative situations and to take away psychological turmoil. When we resist predicaments, it creates a, a duality between us and the reality of our lives. It creates a sense of discord as well because you're setting up a conflict between yourself and situations in your life. 
So when you let go of that resistance, then it often brings a sense of harmony because you're no, lo you're no longer in duality. And it lets go of that discord because the conflict between you and your life, your life situation has dissolved away. So I'm going to explore that a bit more now in, a, in an exercise. It's an exercise based on releasing resistance and entering into a state of acceptance. So if your eyes are not closed, let's gently close them now and return your attention to your inner space. And I'd like you to create an image in your mind. I'd like you to imagine that you are standing at the side or on the side of a mountain and you are looking down over a landscape and the landscape is the landscape of your life. I want you to imagine that every aspect of your life is spread out over this landscape. That includes your past, your future, your present situation. It includes the daily tasks of your life, the tasks of your job, all of the chores you do, the responsibilities and duties of your life. It includes your life situation in terms of the environment you live in, your career, your roles, every aspect of your life situation. It also includes um, the fundamental realities of life itself, such as the aging process, such as death as well. Every aspect of your life is spread out on a landscape in front of you. Just imagine that the landscape that you're looking at from the mountain is your whole life. I'd like you to survey this landscape just as if you're looking over it from the mountain. Just survey the landscape. And I want you to become aware of any area of your life where you feel some resistance. It could be resistance to an aspect of your everyday daily life, a part of your job, people that you meet on, every, on an everyday basis. It could be an aspect of your life situation, maybe your environment, your profession, maybe your level of success and so forth. Or it could be something fundamental like the aging process. A lot of people find the aging process difficult to accept the way our bodies change as we get older. Or it could be death. A lot of people find, obviously, naturally, they find the reality of death difficult to accept. So as you survey the landscape of your life, just be aware of any area where you feel resistance. And just pick one aspect of your life to focus on now. We're just going to work with one aspect of your life where you feel resistance. And you'll probably be aware of it because as you contemplate this aspect of your life, you'll be aware of some degree of tension inside you. 
you'll be aware of the resistance that you feel, some degree of frustration, resentment towards this aspect of your life. So let's focus on that one aspect of your life now that you feel resistance towards. You could also do this with a, an imaginary aspect of your life. If you don't want to work with a, a real aspect of your life, you can just imagine the process that I'm going to take you through. So I'd like you to contemplate this situation of your life. And as you survey it as a part of the landscape, I want you to imagine that there is a cord that connects you to this aspect of your life, a kind of rope that connects you to it that binds you to it. And you can feel the tension because you're connected to this part of your life. You can feel the tension because you're binded to it. And you can feel the, the conflict it causes in your life, the duality it creates. And now, as you contemplate this aspect of your life and as you feel the resistance, we're going we're to go through a process of letting go of the resistance. And we can do this in parallel with our breathing. So the next time, at some point in the next few breaths, I want you to take a very deep in-breath. And as you breathe out, I want you to imagine that the cord that connects you to this aspect of your life is dissolving away, melting away into thin air. And as it melts away, I want you to make a mental intention to let go of your resistance to this aspect of your life. And as you let go of your resistance, you feel a sense of release and openness. So let's do that now. Let's take a a long in-breath, deep in-breath. And as we breathe out, we allow the cord to melt away. We feel a sense of release and we make the mental intention to let go of our resistance. We can do that a couple more times with further breaths, just to make sure, just to complete the process. Just breathe in. And as we breathe out, let go of our resistance. Feeling that cord melt away. Feeling a sense of release as we let go of our resistance. Maybe you can feel a sense of relief because when we hang on to resistance, it does create a, a lot of tension inside us. So it always feels like a relief when we let go of that tension. We let go of the burden of our resistance. And maybe one final time, just breathe in and breathe, take a long, deep out breath, slow out breath, letting go of resistance and embracing the reality of the situation. And as you do this, you can, you can actually open yourself to every aspect of your life, every aspect of your life situation. You can open yourself to, to the whole landscape of your life. 
accepting it all as it is right now. So just as you survey the, the landscape of your life, just let go of all resistance to any aspect of your life. There may be some aspects of your life that you need to change, that need to be changed, but still the beginning of change is often acceptance. Once you've accepted the reality of your life, you, you can begin to sense clearly which aspects need to be enhanced or changed. So finally, just for a few more seconds, just be aware of the, the entirety of your life as it is right now and survey your whole life with an attitude of acceptance. And in this attitude of acceptance, you can feel a sense of harmony a sense of oneness because you are no longer resisting what is but accepting it and becoming one with the reality of your life. So let's retain that sense of release, that sense of harmony and let's slowly become aware of our bodies again. Become aware of our breathing again. Feeling the air brushing your nose as you breathe in and out. Let's slowly open our eyes and bring this exercise to a close. Hopefully that gave you a glimpse of the, the power of acceptance and hopefully it gave you a sense of the, the harmony that can arise in a state of acceptance. I think it's very true that when we resist the reality of our lives, it does create a sense of division and conflict and discord. One day, I'll read you my poem called The Alchemy of Acceptance. Uh, right. uh, maybe I'll finish with actually in a, in a few moments. It's a short poem called The Alchemy of Acceptance. But before then, just for the last 10 minutes or so, before we move into questions, I just want to explore another aspect of the transformational process which people go through in the midst of suffering and turmoil. I've mentioned this many times actually already, but I think that this transformation is largely to do with letting go of psychological attachments. I mentioned that in relation to prisoners and I mentioned that in relation to um, transformation through turmoil in general. It's often to do with a breakdown of psychological attachments, which leads to a breakdown 
of our sense of identity. Because after all, our sense of identity is built up from our attachments. Psychological attachments are like the building blocks of the house of our identity. So you take the building blocks away, then the identity collapses, and then a new identity may emerge. So I want you to I want to I want to illustrate that process and how we can apply that to our own lives. So I want to guide you through a brief meditation based on the principle of letting go of psychological attachments. And as I say, it's a way of illustrating the transformation which people go through in the midst of intense trauma and turmoil. So again, let's, uh, let's close our eyes for a moment. Let's return to our inner space. Hopefully you can still sense that feeling of acceptance and harmony from the previous exercise. And I'd like to begin this new exercise with another visualization. I'd like you to imagine that you're walking down a long straight road into the future. You can see the, the, the road stretching far ahead of you, as far as you can see into the distance. And you can also see it stretching behind you far into the past. Just be aware of yourself walking along this road, step by step into the future, away from the past. Aware of your life as a, a journey from the past to the future. All of the events of your life are ahead of you and all of the past events of your life are behind you. And now far off in the distance, you can see a soft gray mist emerging, beginning to cover the road in front of you. A soft foaming gray mist beginning to cover all of your future, all of the events of your future, heading towards you, covering more and more of the road until it reaches you it feels soft and warm, somehow welcoming. It enters inside your being, inside your body, and you can feel it foaming softly through your inner, inner being, your inner body, from your head, down through your body, into your legs and your feet. It stretches behind you too. You can sense it flowing behind you, covering the road behind you, covering the whole of your past until the whole of the road in front of and behind you is covered with this soft foaming gray mist. You feel completely calm and serene, observing the mist and feeling it against your body and inside your body. But now you can see that the mist is beginning to dissipate and to dissolve. You can see light beginning to break through 
the mist, almost as if the dawn is breaking. And as the mist clears, a landscape begins to emerge around you, a natural landscape of woods, fields, trees, the sky above you, flowers, bushes, a panoramic natural landscape around you in every direction with the sky and the clouds and the sun above you. And as you observe this landscape, you become aware that there is no road into the future or past. The future and the past are abstractions created by thoughts and memories. In reality, there is only the panorama of the present. So as you observe the panorama of the present, I want you to make a mental intention to let go of any attachment to the future or the past. Make a mental intention to release yourself from any future ambitions or plans or attachment to any events from the past. And as you release yourself from those attachments, you feel a sense of liberation and wholeness. And for a moment, let's contemplate a few other aspects of our lives which we may, where we may be attached. Let's contemplate possessions, for example. Just gently contemplate any possessions that you may be attached to, any objects that you may be attached to, or even money that you may feel attached to. Remind yourself that in reality, there is nothing that we can own. There are just objects that we use, that we pick up and put down again, that we step in into and out of. In reality, we don't own anything. And make a mental intention to let go of any attachment to your possessions. Feeling a sense of release as you do so. Let's also contemplate any achievements that we've built up or any degree of success or status that we've acquired as a result of our achievements. Remember that any sense of status or success or achievement is just based on thoughts, memories, ideas in other people's minds about who we are. Let's release ourselves from attachment to status or success, feeling a sense of liberation and openness. Let's also consider 
any attachment we may have to beliefs about the world, any political beliefs, religious beliefs, beliefs about the nature of reality or about life itself or about human beings. Let's remind ourselves that beliefs are just thoughts that have become fixed in our minds. Let's gently release ourselves from our attachment to beliefs, feeling a sense of release and openness. And let's consider any attachment we may have to our appearance, our physical appearance or to the concept of age in terms of how people define us in terms of age or how we define ourselves in terms of our appearance. Let's remind ourselves that our inner being, our non-physical inner being has no appearance, no physical form, and no age, it's ageless and timeless and formless. So let's release ourselves from the, from our attachment to our appearance, our age. Feeling a sense of release and openness. At the end of this process of letting go of attachments, let's consider what remains. We've let go of attachment to the future and past, to possessions, to status, success, to beliefs, to our appearance. What remains after this process of letting go? What remains is our inner being the energy and awareness of our non-physical inner being. And maybe at the end of this process of detachment, you can feel a sense of inner wholeness, a sense of inner well-being, which is natural, which is a natural quality of our inner being. Let's just sense that inner well-being and that quality of wholeness for a moment now. And as we experience this sense of inner well-being and wholeness, it reminds us that in reality, we don't need to depend on anything external for our well-being. We don't need to attach ourselves to anything to sustain our sense of identity, to give us a sense of well-being. Because our deepest inner well-being exists in a natural state of wholeness and well-being.
So let's retain that sense of wholeness and well-being. And let's, for a few moments, return our attention to our bodies. Feel your body against the floor or against your chair. Be aware of your breathing again. And let's bring this meditation to a close by slowly opening our eyes again. Hopefully that meditation gave you a sense of the, the release and the transformation that can occur when we let go of our psychological attachments. As I said, as, long, as well as being a meditation in itself, it was a way of illustrating the, the transformation that people go through in intense trauma and turmoil in order to undergo spiritual awakening. And let me finish um, on the topic of acceptance then before we move into a few questions. This is a, the poem I mentioned called The Alchemy of Acceptance, which describes the, the incredible transformational power of an attitude of acceptance. The Alchemy of Acceptance. Emptiness can be a vacuum, cold and hostile, dark with danger. Or emptiness can be radiant space, glowing with soft stillness. And the only difference between them is acceptance. A task may seem tedious, a chore to rush through reluctantly. Or a task may seem rewarding, a process to relish with an attentive mind. It reveals more richness the more present we become. And the only difference, difference between them is acceptance. Pain may seem unbearable, searing through you from a sharp, concentrated point, so that you have no choice but to resist, to try to escape, to push away the pain. Or pain can be a sensation that you can move towards and merge with, that no longer has a centre and dissipates through your being until it becomes soft and numb, no longer pain at all. And the only difference between them is acceptance. Trauma can break you down to nothing, destroy the identity you spent your whole, your whole life building up, like an earthquake that leaves you in ruins. Or trauma can transform you, break open new depths and heights of your being, give rise to a greater structure, a miraculous new self. And the only difference between them is acceptance. Thank you. So now we have uh, maybe 50 minutes left for questions. So I think some Steve, of you... Um, thanks so much for a, a really brilliant presentation there. I think people, just reading some of the messages there, people are getting loads from that, especially the, the practical exercises you brought everybody through. So, so thank you. Um, just a few questions here. So the first one is from Philip. Um, 
Philip says the message here seems to be that transformative awakening is really the result of a preceding trauma. Is this necessary? No, no. I think I mentioned this briefly earlier that there are, there are different ways in which spiritual awakening can occur. Um, I think probably the most common way in which it occurs is through gradual spiritual practice or gradual life development. You don't have to engage consciously in spiritual practices, but often life events, life experiences create spiritual development in you. In fact, some of the most intensely spiritually awakened people I know have undergone awakening, not through spiritual practice, but through accidental and spontaneous okay. uh, life events and experiences. And that can include trauma, but not always. It can just be sort of um, you know, meditation, service, natural mindfulness. That's really altruism. interesting. Some of these people that are most, that you know, that are most awake, it's been almost accidental for them. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. In fact, I remember meeting a woman a few years ago. She, she had spent her whole professional life as an air steward um, for Lufthansa and British Airways. And she said that she realized after 20 years that being an air stewardess was a kind of spiritual practice because you're always being attentive to people's needs. You're always kind of observing people, looking out for their needs, and you're always serving other people. Uh, so she realized that the service and the attentiveness of being, of being an air hostess uh, was a spiritual practice which, which had led to spiritual development for her. So that's just an wow, illustration. It seems that work for some people does turn into a spiritual practice. Like I've worked with people in the past, like doing manual labor jobs, for example, and just the amount of presence and everything they bring to the work is just so inspiring. And they're just so grounded in what they do. It's, it seems to be that's their way to, to more aliveness in life. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that most spiritual awakenings occur outside the context of spiritual practice or spiritual traditions, often to people who don't know anything about spiritual practices. Okay, so the next one is from Ruzan. Um, so why do you think religious people have more such experiences than secular people? Um, probably because religious people... Um, they have a context to make sense of these experiences. I think some people who have these experiences actually repress them. I've certainly found cases of that because they, you know, maybe they've, they have absorbed a scientific materialist view of reality from our culture. Maybe they are atheists, um, which is nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I consider myself in some ways an atheist, but if you have this experience, but you don't have a framework to make sense of it, it can cause a lot of confusion and it may actually lead you to repress the experiences, to try to forget about it, to pretend it didn't, it didn't happen. But if you are religious, then you have, an immediate, you have an immediate framework to make sense of it, and you can integrate it into your life. And, and, and maybe there's something about the, um, if you follow a religious or spiritual path, you are, there's a degree of openness to these experiences. In a way, you're kind of searching for these experiences, so you're probably more likely to attract them to you. But it's important to remember that, you know, as I say, I've met a lot of people who have these experiences completely outside any religious or spiritual context. And it takes them a long time to make sense of the experience. I knew one guy um, who used to be a spiritual teacher in Manchester, a guy called Russell Williams, who died three years ago uh, at the age of 96. But he had a spiritual awakening in 1950 when he was 29 years old. He's he partly connected to the trauma of the Second World War. 
he was in London during the Blitz and he was at Dunkirk. So the trauma kind of broke down his identity. But he underwent a spiritual awakening in 1950 in a kind of accidental and spontaneous way. But it took him years to understand what happened because at that time there was so little knowledge about these things. There was no knowledge about post-traumatic growth, no knowledge about spiritual awakening. So it took him nine years before he met a Buddhist by chance. And the Buddhist said, hey, you know, you sound, you sound like you're enlightened. So, you know, he entered the field of Buddhism and began to make sense of his experience. It's really interesting. Um, you've, you've said there a few times about the importance of, you know, these people just making sense of their experience. And are you aware of the work of uh, James Pennebacher, who does a lot of work on expressive writing for, um, for trauma? No, I know his name, but I'm not looking to his work. His whole thesis seems to be that um, the reason why expressive writing might be have such a beneficial effect when it comes to processing trauma is that it helps people to to make sense of what happened to them. And whenever whenever we have a coherent story about something that happened in the past, it enables us to sort of move on with our lives, and we can sort of put that behind us but until we've actually made sense and got that story straight in our head um it's always sort of with mm. us and it's always plaguing us what do you think about that yeah i can understand that i think that's a, a great way of processing and integrating the experiences it's so important you know i think there are a lot of people who have these experiences as i say they don't understand them they can't integrate them into their lives and they therefore they repress them i noticed somebody made a comment about near-death experiences and they are, they are obviously a very powerful source of spiritual transformation. But often people repress their death experiences or don't, don't accept the implications of them because they can't make sense of them. I knew one guy, for example, who had a near-death experience when he, he came, he was unconscious um, in the sea. He almost drowned before somebody rescued him in the sea. And he had a near-death experience where he left his body and so forth. But when he returned to his normal self, uh, when he regained consciousness and returned to his normal life, he couldn't make sense of it. It was, it was so opposed to his normal view of reality that he decided he had to, well, he didn't decide, he instinctively repressed it. And it was only 18 months later that he felt a kind of, he had a kind of breakdown because of the repression. And he knew that he had to let go of his repression and accept the experience and understand, try to understand its implications. But it was 18 months after the experience when it suddenly, his resistance oh. suddenly gave away. So it can take a long time to, process these experiences and the more support we have the better i think you know there's therapy which helps people to understand and integrate these experiences is so important that's so interesting so it's like his his model of the world like his yeah his model of the world was just it was so fixed and he couldn't because that experience was so far outside of that reality that he couldn't um integrated so we just had to push it away at that time that's that's yeah, fascinating that's true that's true um okay so next question here is from uh matthew so could this be something like a psychological parallel to the tearing and rebuilding of muscle when exercising i think that works as, as an analogy yeah yeah it's uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good al analogy, actually. Certainly post-traumatic growth can be understood in those terms. I think part of it is that um, maybe another parallel with exercise is that, you know, physical activity in general is that you, you have more resilience than you first realize. If you start out on a run, for example, I go for a run. I went for a run this morning and as usual, I think, oh, I'm not I thought I'm not really up to it today. I'm going to have to maybe give up after a mile. 
But after a while, I, I felt this new energy inside me, this new kind of resilience. And, you know, I kept going for, I did about three miles. But, you know, often we get this kind of second wind, it's called, in athletics. I think there's a psychological power with that, with that. You know, there are, I often think that with human beings, there's so much resilience inside us. There's so much strength within us. But we normally only skim the surface of our beings. You know, it's only when we have a challenge or a crisis that we're forced to delve deep inside ourselves to, you know, to harness the resilience and strength that's always in us. So, you know, I think that's why a lot of crises and challenges and disasters have this, um, this uh, transformational effect because it puts us in contact with these deep reserves of resilience, which we're not normally aware of. It just, it just makes you think about almost the importance of seeking out, I don't want to say trauma, but seeking out difficult, like challenging experiences that are going to bring out more of that potential and not trying to avoid them, you know? That's... Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people do that. I mean, why do people, you know, do um, go paragliding or bungee jumping or climb treacherous mountains or explore dangerous landscapes? It's because they're, they're looking for, I think they're, they're looking for post-traumatic growth. It's kind of like a conscious post-traumatic growth, if you like. But I think you, we, we, have, we yeah. have an instinct to avoid danger and challenge. But there's a part of us which seeks out danger and challenge too, because we know that they will bring about growth. I am aware, we did an interview a couple of years ago. And during the interview, we talked about whenever you were younger, you became quite sort of stoic and you sort of pit yourself through a really difficult time. Um, you were, was it you were like sleeping on the floor and things and you were just sort of really putting yourself through these, these experiences. Do you, you want to quickly tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, that was a, I kind of had a, an ascetic period of my life and I wasn't aware of uh, the tradition of asceticism at the time, but in religions and spirituality, asceticism is the tradition where you inflict suffering on yourself consciously. You know, in extreme examples, it's when people used to wear hair shirts or used to sleep um, on platforms, you know, and avoid contact with other people. And some, sometimes they'd wear, they'd wear um, belts of nails sticking into their, their skin. It seems, you know, it seems neurotic and even perverse. But I think, I think the root of the tradition of asceticism is that it, it's the awareness that suffering can bring about spiritual growth. And I went through a period that, like that in myself. It was, it was also the period when I was severely depressed. That was probably a factor too. I think there was a degree of, uh, you know, self-hatred involved too, and even, you know, self-harm. But I think there was also this impulse to inflict suffering on myself because I wanted to gain access to resources inside me. I wanted to deepen myself. So that was why I would, um, you know, I'd, I'd sleep on a hard floor. I'd open all the windows in winter and sleep naked and so, so forth. It was a, there was a desire to inflict suffering on myself to harness spiritual potential, I, I think. Really interesting um okay so next question um yosh is asking if you'd be able to share any more about the research around refugees and asylum seekers and trauma if, if, if there's anything there more you'd like to share yeah it was a paper um i could send people the link maybe after the session but the paper was called uh transformation through loss and grief and it was a it was an IPA study. IPA is a research method, interpretive uh, phenomenological analysis. It was a research study of 20, about 20 refugees and asylum seekers based in West Yorkshire. And it was a study of, you know, how they cope with their traumatic situations 
and whether they had experienced post-traumatic growth. I think a lot of them had been through so much trauma and were still experiencing a lot of trauma that it was difficult for them to gain access to any degree of post-traumatic growth. But there were a few cases of a quite remarkable post-traumatic growth. I think I mentioned one earlier about a woman who'd been through incredibly traumatic experiences. Uh, that's the one. Yeah, somebody's just posted it. Thanks, Josh. Somebody's just posted it in the chat box. Um, I think that should give you the access to the whole paper if you click on that link. But as I say, there were some remarkable cases of post-traumatic transformation, including a woman who'd been through incredibly severe trauma, but felt, as a result, felt that she was just indestructible. Like, a, like a, she described herself as a lioness, because she, she, she felt so strong. Wow. Um, we've got one here from Terence. Uh, it's, it's more, it's more it's sort of like a statement slash question, but he's sort of saying, you know, to what to what extent do you think the higher self is always there, but it's just really about how connected we are to it? Mm. Would you agree with that based on your own experiences? Yeah, I think that's that's true. Hmm. I think in certainly in um, in the cases of transformation through turmoil that I've investigated, it's as if there is a higher self in everybody, and it just needs the normal ego self to break down in order to gain access to the higher self. But I think, you know, I think when we're living our everyday lives, when we're not, you know, when we're not facing trauma or crisis, I think it's true to say that that higher self is always there inside us. But it's often covered over by the surface of our beings. It's often covered over by the chattering of our minds, by worries about the future, by contemplating the past. And it's often covered over by attachments, the kind of attachments I was talking about earlier, like attachment to possessions attachments to success or status, attachment to the future or the past. But I think in, in any situation, when we let go of our attachments and when we allow our minds to become quiet and our minds to become empty, then we can gain contact with that higher self within us. A hundred percent. So yeah, um, Steve, thank you so much for, for a great talk today and for sharing some of your knowledge and wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Um, before you go, is there any sort of um, final uh, request you have of people? Um, where can people get the book? Your, your website is stephenmtaylor.com. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so any, any parting thoughts? Um, just I know that there were, there, were, there were a lot of questions I couldn't answer, so I've just posted my email address there. If you want to write me an email, I'll be happy to respond to questions. You can also write to me through my website, stephenmtaylor.com. And... Um, I have a few other workshops and events coming up. You can look at those on my website. And otherwise, um, you know, it's been really great interacting with everybody. I've really enjoyed the comments and questions and I hope everybody enjoyed the, the session and the exercises and meditations. That's great, Steve. Well, thank you very much. Um, everybody else, we're back at one o'clock for our next talk with uh, Linda Curran on EMDR. So we'll see you all then and thanks for tuning in. Thanks everybody.